Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 145 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan is the sound recordist. Hello. Hello, everyone. What a proper hello from Dylan. Yay. (laughs) Happy birthday, Andrew. It was Andrew's birthday yesterday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Did you, you know, maybe get any birthday shame? We're just jumping right in. I see. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Feet first. <laughs> well, somebody, under the guise of her cat, Wallace, mm. gave me a gift certificate to the Strand bookstore. I don't know what you're talking about. My cat, Wallace, accessed my computer, went to strand.com, sent this gift card on his own. I had nothing to do with it. You've told me several times he can't read or write. <laughs> <laughs> Billy does this thing where she tapes her hands to Wallace's paws and operates the computer. It's a, it's a big problem. Oh, so cute. Plausible deniability. Plausible deniability. Oh. Well, um, I happened to be near the strand when the email came through. So I made my way over there yesterday on the day and uh, did a purchase. And I picked up a couple books. I went, as always happens, I went over my gift certificate limit because, Mm -hmm. you know, you gotta. Yep. Um, And I picked up a copy of The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. Oh, The Night Circus. (laughs) Classic. Yeah, which I had been looking for. And at Christmas, we went to Books A Million and I couldn't find it there. So I was happy to find a copy. It's a nice cover. And because it was the the basic edition, you can get a used copy very cheap at the Strand. So it was only like six bucks. Nice. Hot tip from the two read list, guys. Used books are cheaper than new books. (laughs) And they usually have the same words in them. (laughs) Have you tried street books? Yeah, street books are the cheapest. <laughs> uh, I also picked up a copy of Normal People by Sally Rooney, uh, based on your review, Bailey. Yeah. Yes. I also picked up a book called Trust Exercise by Susan Choi and a book called Oligarchy by Scarlett Thomas. Those are the books I bought. And then beyond that, I was given the gift of a book called Wind, Sand and Stars by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote The Little Prince by Jillian as part of my birthday present. And she also gave me a really nice edition of The Little Prince that comes with like outtakes that they have from his notebooks. So it's very beautiful. Like The Little Prince like trips and falls off the planet. It's bloopers. Yeah. Yeah, the bloopers. <laughs> it comes with a blooper book. It's an, it's a very pretty edition. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And so actually, I'm glad you brought this up. First of all, to shame me for having a birthday and using your gift <laughs> so that I had to announce shame on the podcast. <laughs> Though I suppose I could have bought socks at the Strand or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the tagline for the gift card was shame. <laughs> so. It was. It was. <laughs> um, and the note said, Happy International Women's Day, mm-hmm. which... Is a, a, a wonderful day and also my birthday, but really? everyone always now makes this joke <laughs> <laughs> that instead of wishing me happy birthday, they wish me happy International Women's Day. Well, you're um, a feminist ally, so it works. It's yeah. true. Yeah, no, it's fine. It's just it's just funny. I feel like I don't know if the if International Women's Day is just gaining in prominence in recent years because no one ever made this joke to me as a kid or even as a teenager. And then recently, I feel like it's just becoming more widely celebrated, which is a good thing. But it leads to the same joke being repeated every, every year. Yeah, I think it's definitely more prominent than it used to be. I don't really remember anybody celebrating it back in the day. Me too. And it remains a hilarious joke. So I yeah. don't see the problem. Yeah, that's true. Beyond announcing my shame, which I would have done anyway, I'm, I'm glad you brought up buying books because I'm curious if any of you have sort of experienced this. I know we're trying not to buy new books mm-hmm. and all that, but I have noticed that when I am tempted down the primrose path towards a bookshop <laughs> and I'm buying new books for myself, I'm intentionally buying shorter books 
knowing that they could be drawn for me at any time. So like the total, hmm. some total of all of these books, like none of them are over like 350 pages. And only one that's close to that is Night Circus. The other ones are all like 220 or under. I'm like preemptively guarding myself from having to read too long of a book. <laughs> has that, has that mean, started happening to y'all? It's a wise choice. Um, You know, I haven't. Well, I guess the closest to that was I almost bought a copy of Don Quixote. And I was like, I don't want that to be picked for the podcast. So I didn't pick it. But other than that, I, I don't think I've done the same thing. I feel kind of bad that we're adjusting your reading. Well, these are all books I was interested in reading anyway. Okay. You just didn't pick up that coffee of infinite jest you've always been wanting to read. Right. Exactly. Like, I, or I wasn't, I'm, I'm often really tempted by history books. And there was like this big book about the history of England. And I was like, I could grab that. Yeah. Oh, wait. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't get 12 through 1200 pages of English history for the next episode. Andrew, do you feel like maybe, I don't know, like Bailey said, she feels bad about influencing your reading or your buying habits. But do you think that maybe it's a good thing? Like, you know, you're interested in this giant book on British history, but how likely were you to read it within the next couple of years? You know what I mean? Like as this as this podcast has proved for all of us, we kind of have a problem with being like aspirational and being like, I'm going to read this. And then you just never do. Do you think it's do you think it's helpful then? Yeah, I think it is helpful. Um, I mean, I'll still end up reading longer books and buying them. But yeah, I just uh, I think twice now, which I feel like is probably a good thing for both like weight of of future moving boxes uh, <laughs> if I switch apartments and also just for, you know, not having extra books. Yeah, we're being more realistic with ourselves. Yeah. 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 Toby, do you have any shame to report this week? Zero shame. Yay. Bailey? I just I do not have any shame, but I just have to say that I got saved I want to say saved by the bell, but that's not saved by the plane. Um, I was going, there was a massive library book sale at the library down the street from us, like a giant one. But it happened to be on a day when Dylan and I took a plane to New York to see a play Andrew wrote. So I missed the book sale, but it was for the best because I would not have been able to come away with that without shame. Would you have just, would you have gone? Yes. Why? Why go? Yeah, Bailey, why go? go? Guys, guys. It is right next. It is it is hilarious how close the library is to you. I mean, if someone were to be like, hey, don't go to that free ice cream stand manned by unicorns right across the street, you would go. If I had a good reason well, not to go, I would That's an awful analogy. Go. Yeah. <laughs> They're lactose intolerant or scheduled This is like a biannual <laughs> book sale. It happens a lot. To answer your question, I would not go if I had a ton of unicorn ice cream in my freezer at the at the moment which is what you already have i don't think you, you have, can have enough unicorn ice cream well i don't know you work <laughs> at wait till you work at a unicorn ice cream store to get sick of unicorn ice cream well i am who i am you guys <laughs> <laughs> all right um listeners have been clamoring for it listeners have been asking us when are you going to do a dylan's cupboard under the stairs and today is that day. Listeners have been putting us under the imperious curse and forcing us to do it. I don't know what that means. So <laughs> so for those who are just tuning in, Dylan, my beloved husband, and our beloved sound recorder has read all the Harry Potter books except book seven, and he's been now reading book seven for over a year. So we're going to check in and see how it's going for him. Okay, so um, I know you guys are all riveted about what's going to happen next to Harry, Hermione, and Ron. Hermione. 
Hermione. Also, we know what happens next. We've Dylan, you know this. And Ron. <laughs> um, so last time we checked, they were at the Black House, the Black's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, we met Creature. Grimwald place. Creature. What do you think of Creature, Dylan? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up. Thumbs way up for Creature. Here's really? the thing. He calls them on their crap. <laughs> he does call them on their crap. Yeah. They are very whiny and everything, but they also have a plan. Because uh, I left on a cliffhanger last time that the Ministry of Magic has fallen. Or has been infiltrated or taken over. Basically, everything's going bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they decide they have to break into the Ministry of Magic because for some reason there is a Horcrux there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you know what a Horcrux yeah, is? Yeah, what's a Horcrux? I know what a Horcrux is. It's a thing that Voldemort puts his soul into and they have to destroy, but they can't because they don't know how to destroy it. Okay. That's pretty good. It's crazy because it looks that sounds like I'm making it up off the top of my head, but that's legitimately <laughs> what it is. That's about as much information as they do give you about what Horcruxes are. All like. right, stop getting defensive and keep and tell us about the book. Hermione, uh, Harry, and Ron. So there's a lot of names thrown at me in this one. Hermione, more, yeah, l- more Ron, than Harry. Uh, they more decided to break into the Ministry of Magic by using the Polyjuice Potion. I know what that is. It allows you to turn into other people. Mm-hmm. Now. You keep being very defensive about knowing what things are and then pretending you don't know Hermione's name, (laughs) which is unfathomable to me. (laughs) I think this is different from the movie because I remember this scene. So in the movie, um, I think Hermione, Hermione, Hermione turns into uh, Helena Bonner Carter, Bella Lestrange. (laughs) Yeah, you knew it. Uh, Tim Burton's wife. Um, <laughs> but in this one, they turn into three people named Mafalda Hoprick, Cattermole, and oh crap, what's Harry's dumb name? I don't think it matters. It doesn't matter. I do not have to know who no. they are, right? No, this is not important. Okay. Though Mafalda Hopkirk is from the accidental, she's from the misuse of like underage magic office. Sure. Thanks, Andrew. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> it's only driving us down a deeper hole <laughs> that we will die in. Anyway, they go around, uh, they think they, they found. Go around. They go around the Ministry of Magic. They sneak incognito, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and uh, they break into. How do I know her name's Imelda Stanton? But you're so specific with these names. I know Dolores um, Umbridge. Yes, <laughs> they break into Dolores Umbridge's office because Dolores Umbridge works here because power going unchecked is kind of a huge theme in this. Mm-hmm. So she just gets promoted, um, and they think that it's Mad Eye Moody's eye is the uh, Horcrux. Spoiler it's not. Dang. Oh, wow. But yeah, so they break into Dolores Umbridge's office. Dolores Umbridge is still there being mean. Um, I don't know if anyone here needs to me to describe who Dolores Umbridge is. I was going to say, do you remember who no, Dolores Umbridge is? No, they don't. Umbridge? They absolutely don't. I do remember who Dolores Umbridge is. She is a very scary person. She is very mean. Mm-hmm. Passive aggressive mean. Very specific. Okay. And she is now in charge of just torturing people, I guess? I, it seems like they just call her in to be, like, their CIA black book program of interrogating non-magic people. She loves to torture people. Yeah, well, yeah. you do what you love. You never work a day in your life. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, they go into their office, and then they realize that the brooch is actually uh, the Horcrux. Yes. And so, anyway, they they reveal themselves while she's torturing um, uh, Miss Catermole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they make a a lot of a lot of teleporting going on, a lot of spells being thrown around, uh, apparating, a lot of apparating. Dylan sounds like a witness after a crime. <laughs> I just don't know but, what happened. But it one happened who so drank fast. too much coffee while the crime was going on. <laughs> and they apparate their way out, mm-hmm. which is a really useful power to have. 
Mm-hmm. And so they go out into the woods. And I like that they kind of address this. Uh, Ron got a little piece of him not apparated out. So he's actually really not doing good. Oh, yeah. about that. He's like splinched, splinched, something like that. Makes sense, because like, if they're treating this like cards, like apparating around, it's like people are going to get into apparating accidents, and they will be gruesome. But in this case, it's not like he's missing like an arm or something. Yeah. He's just missing a side of his stomach well and it matches up because ron is totally the guy who like always has scratches on his car like if he drove a car he'd be like the one who has dents on over it yeah that's me <laughs> <laughs> that's valley so anyway they set up camp um they bicker a lot about i remember this how to oh, destroy yeah. the brooch um they blame the brooch on them bickering but nope turns out they're just bickering because they're teenagers uh, I thought it was the brooch. They say it's the brooch, but then Ron specifically says, like, no, I just hate Harry because he's a jerk that uh, forces us to do things that we don't want to do. And it's like, you know what? That's not that bad of a thing. I think the brooch is fooling you, Dylan. It's very much like Lord of the Rings, like when you're wearing a the ring. A little bit. So they decided not to go back to Hogwarts and they're camping out. Yes. Because- How do you feel about that? I... I'm kind of getting on Ron's side now where it's like, we, we've been chasing, he literally says like, we've been chasing this for the past three weeks and like nothing, at, like, they don't feel progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like we have the approach, now what do we do with it? But when they are arguing, they overhear some voices. Uh, it turns out some refugees, I'm not going to remember their names, Tim is one. Dean Thomas. Dean Thomas. Sure. How do you remember? It's Dean Thomas and it's Grip Hook the Goblin. It is Grip Hook the Goblin. I did have that written down. That's the one thing I ever done. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally Grip Hook, Goblin, Dean, Human. Because that took me a second to figure out. Um, and they're talking about a bunch of action, I guess, that's happening off screen that a ragtag group, <laughs> a ragtag commando group consisting of Ron's sister, Luna, and uh, Neville have stolen the sword of Gryffindor. Uh-huh. But here's the thing. The sword is a uh, fake. So then they yell at a painting for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I forgot how complicated this is. Right? This is like a chapter. I do remember large parts of this book. I was just kind of blasting through, like not, I didn't really care about a lot of this, like plotting. Like I didn't really care for it. I didn't really like it. Honestly, it's not my favorite book. Seven. Well, I was sad that they didn't go to Hogwarts. That made me. Yeah. I, I was disappointed on a completionist angle because it's like he did six years of the school. He's not going to finish his last year. Yeah. It's like someone reading six books of a series. <laughs> I am the chosen one. <laughs> but it is weird that like all this stuff is happening at Hogwarts. That's not like I'm getting secondhand from yeah. Dean and Gripclaw. Grip hook. Whatever. <laughs> so right. join me next week. <laughs> I don't know. What we Mercifully, picked. is this done now? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dylan. Well, you did some good reading. You got like, what, 50 pages read? That was 150 pages. 150 pages? Wow. I have to say, I think this is the most impressive uh, Dylan's Cupboard Under the Stairs yet. It was it was concise. You yeah. had to look up a couple names. It was great. Good job, yeah. Dylan. It was like 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty long. Look, the only reason I do this is just to torture Andrew. That's it. <laughs> and it works. All right. This week on the podcast. Speaking and- of torture. <laughs> oh. 
This week on the podcast, Andrew had a book chosen at random from his shelf. Andrew, what book did you have? I had The Sympathizer by Viet Tan Nguyen. The Sympathizer is the tale of an unnamed narrator of mixed Vietnamese and French ancestry as he works as a double agent for the victorious North Vietnamese, continuing his role when the general he spies on is evacuated to California. The story spans years and deals with the toll of living when your life contains unsolvable contradictions. Mm. So just a little more depth on the plot. So the character we never get their name um he is a aide-de-camp or like close advisor of the south vietnamese general who when america has pulled out of the vietnam war evacuates just before the fall of saigon and ends up living as a refugee in california where he continues his life working for the general but the whole time he is actually a double agent sending information back to uh, the north vietnamese he himself is a really interesting character because he had been educated in the U.S. He speaks flawless English. He's of he's of mixed race, so he doesn't actually really fit in in either place because uh, Vietnamese people look at him as, as being Western and uh, the people in the U.S. look at him as being Vietnamese and not wholly of either part. So um, he comes at the world from a place of, he, he describes having two minds or, or, or two different places that doesn't actually fit anywhere, which I thought was a, a really interesting dynamic to approach especially when that's contradicted with the fact that he's working also as a double agent. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of themes of like having split consciousness or, or split motivations and, and all that. So some of the things I really liked about this book, it's a side of the Vietnam War that isn't often shown. I feel like we think about the Vietnam War from the position of the Americans having lost it and evacuating and it being like a galvanizing moment for the for the hippie movement and the counterculture movement and all that. But we don't often think about it in terms of the implication of the losing side of the Vietnamese people. Because while we think of it as being a often, I feel like the narrative is like, that's a war we shouldn't have been in. Why were we meddling? It doesn't often get shown that there was also a side of the war that genuinely wanted our help and wanted us to be there and asked for our help. So we don't get to see the South Vietnamese story that often. And so it was just sort of refreshing to see a different angle. Like whatever your views on it are, it's it's good to sort of see things from a different perspective. Hmm. Sounds interesting. I also like that the conflict in the book sometimes came from unexpected places. I expected this book from the beginning to sort of be about him like struggling with being a double agent. And I don't think this is a spoiler to say, but like he never like questions that. He's just like, "No, this is what I'm doing. The other side is right. I'm working for the North Vietnamese. It's great." <laughs> and his the conflict comes from the things he has to do to keep his cover and the new life he's living while also having split loyalties. But like I sort of thought it was refreshing that he's like, "No, no, I, I got this. Like it, I'm doing the right thing." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, It also is really well written a lot of the time and I'll get into in my orcs. Sorry, these are my elves Um, in my orcs. I'll get into some of the things I had a problem with, but some of the language is incredibly clever and beautiful and like surprising. In particular, I want to bring in a quote from page 17, which is talking about him in Saigon right before it falls, looking at a scene where soldiers are are drinking and hanging out, not knowing what's about to happen. They were my enemies, and yet they were also brothers in arms. Their beloved city was about to fall, but mine was soon to be liberated. It was the end of their world, but only a shifting of worlds for me. So it was for that two minutes we sang with all our hearts, feeling only for the past and turning our gaze from the future, swimmers doing the backstroke towards a waterfall. 
That's great. That's beautifully written. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really well written and the narrator character himself is like is a really fascinating narrator to have. You don't know his name, you don't know a lot about him, but he is really forthcoming with what he thinks and talks about things very plainly. Um and so is like a very interesting person to serve as your guide through this through this world. Moving a little bit towards the things I liked a little bit less, my orcs. I'm going to try to say this delicately because we're a family podcast. Uh-oh. <laughs> And it's a tendency I've noticed in a lot of authors, but it really bugs me. And if you're an author listening to this podcast and you don't want to really bug me specifically, for whatever Hmm. reason, try to avoid doing this. There's something really uncomfortable about this tendency that authors use to use sexual descriptors, usually female, to describe inanimate objects. Mm. I'm not going to use examples, but like, there's no reason that you need to use like the female form to describe anything. It, it, (laughs) It just becomes uncomfortable. There's just no reason to do it. It always reads as like gross to me and not because there's anything gross about the female form. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it feels leery and like gross dude behavior. Yeah. It's like all they're thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's like, why are you looking at this jungle scene and like getting sexy with it? I don't need that. (laughs) Fair enough. Very fair. Yeah, and that it feeds into um, another sort of issue I had with the book, which was that there is a extreme lack of non-sexualized female characters from the beginning of the book. There is, I can think of maybe one character off the top of my head who isn't directly an object of attraction for the narrator or like somehow wildly mistreated that has like any sort of bearing on the plot and she is an unnamed character called the general's wife um, though i mean that is actually a theme of the book very few people have names in this book mm. um so that's not the fact that she doesn't have a name isn't necessarily a fair critique because like the general is only referred to as the general and such right but still there was like <laughs> there was just no one it was it was mainly him and, and uh three other male characters who he talks to and it just felt a little Um, Like he had the room and he had the groundwork with some really interesting characters to be more than that. And they just never were. Um, So that bugged me a little bit. Yeah. And feeding off of that, I didn't really see what the point of that conceit of not naming most of your characters were because he didn't he had too many characters to keep the conceit going well because eventually he had to start naming people so you didn't get lost (laughs) like his his two friends have names and that makes sense to me and if those were the only ones that had names that would be really cool but eventually he introduces too many characters and he's like well i gotta name this person i gotta name this actor there's art there's like three actors so okay these guys all have to have names but this one will just be called the actor um (laughs) so i it ended up i feel like confusing me and being more of a distraction than like a, a an aid to the story, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it's like the baker, the candlestick maker, and Joe. John. Yeah. <laughs> I also feel like while I actually read this book at a pretty good clip and didn't find myself getting mired down in it, and I know you two both had different experiences with that. I was sort of expecting that, and I was sort of pleasantly surprised by how quickly it moved. I did think there was a lot of time where, because so much of this book is internal and in his head, the author tended to just let things ramble, I think, a little more than they needed to. It's about a 380-page book, and I could see it being 50 pages shorter, and it would just be sort of cutting down within paragraphs. You could still have all the same things happen and all the same beautiful sentences, just like cutting out a little bit of the repetition within them. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes he really effectively used repetition and like long lists to emphasize a point. But when you do that all the time, it stops being a tool that's like effective to the reader. Yeah, that's fair. 
Yeah. And so all that said, it did clip along for me pretty well. I enjoyed the process of reading that book. I was taken out by some of the orcs and the negative things that I was just talking about. So ultimately for me, it's a three star book. There are moments of it where I was like, this is pretty good. This could go up to four. And then it ultimately just kept sort of just being a little bit less than what I wanted. Okay. And I, I always feel bad when I f- say things like that because this, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning book. People clearly yeah. love it. But like I just I, I couldn't get on board with it. I think I ended up giving it two or three stars for similar. I, I found this one to be really a slog. Um, I had a really hard time getting through it. But maybe it was because I had such high expectations from the Pulitzer Prize. And it was really it was compared to Catch-22. And I haven't read Catch-22, but I was wondering, Andrew, if you see why people compare the two. You know, actually, yeah, that's a really good comparison. And I thought about that a little bit as I was reading. Definitely draws from the same well of bringing absurdity into the world of war Mm -hmm. in a way, especially on like the... uh, leadership side of it which is a big theme in catch 22 so yeah i mean that's a great parallel and i mean if you guys think back i think that was our second episode i also had uh, my troubles with catch 22 for sometimes <laughs> similar reasons right yeah. i mean sometimes some people love the book and some people just don't connect with it and that's okay very deep yeah <laughs> well that's great all right so the sympathizer by via ten win three stars very nice toby do you have any facts i do have facts believe it or not wow Viet Tan Nguyen was born in Ban, Ban Mai Thuat, Vietnam in 1971. Um, he is the son of two refugees from North Vietnam, and they moved south in 1954. They were Catholics, North Vietnamese Catholics, of which there were many at that time. And they were told by parish priests that they had to evacuate or they would be killed at the hands of the North Vietnamese, a claim that didn't end up being 100% true for all the uh, Catholics who stayed behind. It was a bit of um, fear-mongering, people say. After the fall of Saigon in 1975, uh, his family fled to the United States. They first settled in Fort Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania, which was one of only four American camps that accommodated refugees from Vietnam at the time. Then they relocated to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania until 1978. Then they relocated again to San Jose, California, um, where they actually opened up one of the first Vietnamese grocery stores in that city. Oh, cool. He um, went to a St. Patrick's School, a Catholic elementary school, uh, then went on to a prestigious preparatory school. He briefly attended UC Riverside and UCLA and then finished his studies at UC Berkeley, um, California. He graduated in 92 with a Bachelor of the Arts. He went on and got his PhD in English from Berkeley as well. Nowadays, he lives in Los Angeles um, and he teaches at the University of Southern California. So he's Dr. Viet Tan Nguyen. Exactly. He's also a cultural critic for the Los Angeles Times. Um, So that's kind of his background. As it happens a lot with these modern authors, we don't have a ton about his life. Um, But I do have some excerpts from an interview from NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross. This is Fresh Air. All of our listeners are listening to podcasts, so I assume you all listen to Fresh Air. (laughs) So Terry asks, Viet Tan Nguyen, welcome to Fresh Air. Why did you want to write this novel from the point of view of a spy? And his answer is, well, when my agent told me I should write a novel, the first thing that came to me was a spy novel. And partly it's because it's a genre that I really enjoy. And I want to write a novel that was actually entertaining, that people would actually want to read, because I knew I'd also be dealing with a lot of very serious political and literary matters. And the other inspiration for that was that there really were spies in South Vietnam that rose to the very highest ranks in the South Vietnamese bureaucracy and military. Um, Gross asks, so in 1975, when Saigon fell and your parents' town had already been taken over by the North Vietnamese, your family fled. 
So it was you, your parents, and your brother. So they all fled together. He was about four years old at the time. And Nguyen answers, yeah, the story was that in March 1975, my father had gone to Saigon on business, and my mother was at home in Bon Matat with myself, my brother, and my adopted sister, who was the oldest sibling. So March 1975, the communist army invades, seizes the town, cuts off all communication. My, my mother can't communicate with my father, so she takes our lives into her hands and decides to flee the town on foot with my brother, who was 10 years old, and myself, who was four, and leaves behind my adopted sister, who was about 16, to take care of the family property because she believed and now i'm paraphrasing because she believed that they would be back well and then we're going to cut forward well of course we never got to go back and my mom walked downhill to Trang, the port town about 150 miles south and the best i can say is that at least it was all downhill and i don't remember any of it even though my brother says it was horrible about a month later, the communists came and took Saigon, and according to my brother, we tried various ways to get out of the city. We went to the airport, couldn't get out. Finally, we made it onto a barge, but we got separated. And so again, my father was somewhere else. My mother was with us. And without knowing where my father was, my mother decided to get on the boat. And later, we discovered that my father had gotten on that boat too. That's crazy. So my parents have always been risk takers. That's crazy. That reminds me oh, of a movie. Just like... Okay, I, I'm just going to go then. And then like, oh, no, what have I done? Oh, thank God you're here. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy to just be like, I'm going to get on this boat and maybe I'll never see my husband again. Yeah. Oh, you're on here too. Oh, great. Oh, yeah, totally. That's well, fine. it's also like I imagine that maybe awkward moment where it's like, oh, so you got on the boat and left me behind. Well, you <laughs> got on the boat and left me behind. Like, you can't be mad. Yeah. Great facts, Toby. Thank you. I feel a little bad now about my review, but isn't that always the way? Yeah, that's what happens. It's always <laughs> the way. Bailey. We took the week off, right? Yeah, I didn't read anything this week. Bye. Bye. What's the game? <laughs> <laughs> no, this week I read Cold Mountain by Charles Fraser. Burr. Burr Mountain. <laughs> Ice cold. <laughs> so this one, as I said in the uh, last podcast, was on my parents' shelf when I was growing up, and I would always walk by it, and it has a very striking cover of this like ombre mountain range in, in shades of blue. Um, and I was drawn to it as a kid, and I thought, oh, I'll read that someday. And then the movie came out, um, and I went to see it with my dad. I don't know if you went, Andrew. I did go. You did go. I, this is the first time, and I was probably, I was a teenager. I don't know how old I was. But I, I stood up it at the- It was 2003, so how old were you? 16. There you go. Okay. So I stood up, and I was like, that's going to win Best Picture. <laughs> And you were wrong. And yeah. I was wrong. Though, I remember dad said that uh, Renee Zellweger was going to win Best Supporting Actress, and he was right. And he was right. Hmm. So there you go. I don't know. Maybe I just hadn't seen a lot of prestige pictures at the time, <laughs> but I was just like, this seems like it's going to win the Oscar. And I really liked it at the time. Haven't seen it since. I totally imagine you doing it in the middle of the movie. <laughs> this is going to win Best Picture. Sit down. <laughs> so... With these positive associations, when I saw the book for $1 at a library book sale, I picked it up. Mm. Cold Mountain is a dual narrative. It tells the story of Inman, a wounded Confederate soldier, and his sweetheart Ada. While Inman makes an epic trek from a field hospital to Cold Mountain, a genteel Ada learns to master her farm with the help of an industrious young woman named Ruby, played by Renee Zellweger in the film. I'll start with elves, things I liked about this book. Charles Frazier is great at describing landscape um, and putting you in the mood. Oh boy, this doesn't bode well for is this Is he great book. at describing landscapes and temperatures? <laughs> <laughs> I knew the temperature of every mountain. <laughs> okay, he's, he 
He uses a lot of sensory descriptions of the mountains. <laughs> 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 Bill, you read the book or did you just look at the cover? <laughs> they reworked it. Um, and, you know, that, that those descriptions very much color the book and put you in the space. We're in the Civil War. We're in the Blue Ridge Mountains. We're there. So here's an example, a sentence that you can get a taste of his descriptions. The mountain was cold. Yeah. <laughs> very cold. <laughs> You ever have a, a Slurpee from 7-Eleven? <laughs> it was cold like that. <laughs> okay. This is page 14. Mornings on the high bald were crisp, with fog lying in the valleys so that the peaks rose from it disconnected like steep blue islands shattered across a pale sea. Beautiful. Beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you can picture it. However... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here's the thing. He loves his descriptions of landscapes. Mm. So this is... I was thinking about it with regard to your review last week, Toby, of Pachinko or two weeks Mm -hmm. ago, when you were saying that you like colorful sort of purple prose. Mm -hmm. This is chock full of that. You'll love Mm -hmm. it. For me, I would rather it get more to the action. Um, And so it kind of slowed me down. I found that he was so good at putting me in this like mood of slow living um, that it was kind of soporific. It it made me fall asleep. So as I was reading, I realized that I didn't pick up on this in 2003. This is essentially the Odyssey. This is essentially a man trying to get home to his woman. And it takes a really long time. (laughs) So it's a lot of descriptions of him walking, him encountering people, um, going on little adventures or saving the day if he needs to, avoiding people who might capture him because he's a, a deserter. Intercut with... Ada waiting at home for him, and Ada also fending off people who are trying to take things from her farm, etc. So, if you like the Odyssey, you'll love this book. Another thing I liked about the book was, I think that the romance is done really well. The love scenes are very convincing um, and very romantic. Maybe because he's so good at descriptions, (laughs) it, it, it doesn't feel too on the nose. It feels very romantic. So her, I think her skin was like the opposite of a mountain. Oh my gosh. Nice and warm. <laughs> uh, with that said, for me, I wanted more of the love scenes because they don't have a relationship really before they part. I, I characterize Ada as his sweetheart, but it's more like they have crushes on each other and then mm-hmm. he goes off to war. And if I were writing the book, I would structure it a little bit differently. So there was a little bit more up front because I really want to be rooting for him to get there. And right now I'm just kind of like, just get there already. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. He's only walking 300 miles. <laughs> only. He, okay. I am not an expert hiker. I am a terrible hiker and I can do like <laughs> 10 miles a day. So it should only take like, 30 days, maybe if he's wounded, maybe like 50 days. It takes him years. Oh, wow. Years? It feels like years. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is it years or does it feel like years? That's an important distinction. It, it doesn't say. It says that they are separated for four years. But I don't know how much of that was him fighting in the war and how much yeah. of them is him trying to get back. It's the whole book. It's yeah. 353 pages. So <laughs> if you are offended at all by descriptions of war or violence or, you know, sexist or racist descriptions, you won't like this book. This is not to say that the author is in any way sexist or racist, but just because of the time period, the way that the people are characterized is not very modern. If I were to sum this up, I didn't really like this book, and I feel bad that I don't like this book. And I know some people think that I should just stick to my guns and just say it's a bad book, but people really love this book. 
We have some listeners who wrote in and just said, I really love this book. Mm. I'm so excited that you're reading it. And it's really popular on Goodreads. And it just didn't connect for me. It just made me fall asleep. I just found it a little boring. Um, I wanted more action. I wanted more romance and less description. So, I mean, it's kind of like the sympathizer. Like, it just wasn't for me. With that said, it really might be for you. And a lot of people love this book. So, for me, it's a two-star. Ooh, dang. I thought we were going to go three-star central. I know. (laughs) It should be three-star, but I ended up having to listen to it to get through it just because I couldn't stay awake. So, I was like, that's probably a two-star. Yeah, that's rough, man. Yeah. And I don't think I'm going to keep it on my shelf. I think I'm going to give it to someone who will love it more than me. And that's totally fair. Yeah. When you were talking about it, I mean, I thought about the fact that when the movie came out, it made a big splash, you know, did well. And I knew it was based on a book, but never heard one peep about the book since. Never met anybody who read it, anybody who talked about it. So I think it to me, it seems like one of those books that like is hot and really good for like, you know, six months and then just passes completely out of the cultural conversation forever. Yeah, maybe it was really hot in like 97 or whenever it came out. And then, you know yeah. what? I might make the same prediction about The Sympathizer. I don't Ooh. really see it already. It came out in 2016. I haven't heard anybody referencing it or talking about it, you know, since then. Probably be the same. Mm. <laughs> We're just trashing on books today. I'm sorry, listeners, but we can only say how we feel. I yeah. mean, the theme is, though, these are beloved books, just not for us. Good yeah. for you, not for me. Toby, do you have any facts on Charles Frazier? Old Chucky F. Yes, I do. Charles Frazier was born on November 4th, 1950. Frazier uh, has actually said that the real W.P. Inman, the the novel is based on the main character, was his great-grand-uncle who lived near the real Cold Mountain, which is now in the Pisgah National Forest, Haywood County, North Carolina. However, in the book's acknowledgments, Fraser apologizes for taking, quote, great liberties in the writing of Inman's life. So I think he based it on the idea that he had a great-granduncle, but this is not necessarily his life. It's probably for the best. I mean, he does a lot of uh, unsavory things. Um, this is Charles Fraser's first novel, and became a major bestseller. It sold roughly 3 million copies worldwide. And of course, as we all know, it was adapted into the Academy Award-winning film, also called Cold Mountain. But I bet you didn't know that it has also been adapted as an opera. No. Called Cold Mountain. Oh. That makes sense, though. Its structure lends itself well to an opera. Yes. Really? Okay. Well, I mean, it, it's like the Odyssey, right? It's very epic. Mm-hmm. Cold Mountain, the opera, was presented during the 2015 Summer Festival by the Santa Fe Opera. Cool. There you go. Um, So uh, with many of our modern authors, we don't have a ton about their lives. So I'm going to give you a little splash from this is something that he wrote for The Guardian, uh, basically about writing um, Cold Mountain. So this is all direct quotes from him. As I wrote my way into it, I found myself less and less interested in the Civil War itself, all that fetishizing of the generals and their tragic grandeur. I was more interested in the devastation visited on ordinary lives, and also the shadows it cast forward to the present, since it has always seemed to me that historic novels tell as much about the times in which they are written as the times in which they are set. That's interesting. Yeah, I think the book very much takes the attitude that these are people that don't really care about the war and particularly Mm -hmm. they don't care about fighting for slavery however in some ways i felt that disingenuous that nobody Mm. was pro-slavery and really nobody was pro-war nobody was pro-confederate it just feels a little bit like revisionist to me yeah fair enough so from the same piece from the guardian he says while writing cold mountain i held maps of two geographies two worlds in my mind as i wrote one was an early map of north carolina 
Overlaying it, though, was an imagined map of the landscape Jack travels in the Southern Appalachian folk tales. He's much the same Jack who climbs the beanstalk, vulnerable and clever and opportunistic, and sometimes violent. The mountains he wanders seem to go on forever. I wanted Cold Mountain to incorporate the sort of practical magic and weirdness of those stories, and of murder ballads and lonesome fiddle tunes, but I also wanted the book to insist on the reality of its fictional world. So that made me curious, are there fantastical elements in this book? Not really, not really fantastical, but like a lot, like it takes him a very long time to go 300 miles. <laughs> so he, it's he, fantastic how slow he is. I have a lot to unpack of that quote, though. First off, what's a murder ballad? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I want to hear one. And then this is the last bit is he says, Henry James wrote that, quote, the historical novel is, for me, condemned to a fatal cheapness, end quote. And yet he also wrote that, quote, the sense of the past is our sense. Quote, I kept both of those lines pinned over the wall of my writing desk, every day trying to avoid the one and reach for the other. It is not either or, though, it's a continuum. The scarlet pimpernel near one end, the scarlet letter near the other. Hmm. And that's all the facts I have. Yeah. All right, well, cold mountain, cold for me, maybe good for you. <laughs> Two cold stars. <laughs> uh, Andrew, do you have a game for us? I do have a game yes. for you today. Yay. Would yes. you like to play yes. a game? No. Yes, please. All right. Today's game is called Double Agent. Ooh. Ooh, I like it. And the reason I was inspired by the fact that The Sympathizer was about a double agent living dual lives, and then Cold Mountain is about a deserter who's in danger and, and it's set in the Civil War. And so here's how this game is going to work. Okay. I'm going to give you uh, the name of two states, one who fought for the North and one who fought for the South in the Civil War. And then I'm going to give you a list of three towns or cities. One of those cities is in both states, meaning Ooh. there is a city named that in both states. For example, if I was saying Oregon and Maine, again, not removing the Civil War aspect, Oregon and Maine, <laughs> Portland. Portland, Portland would be the one Portland. that is in the same both places. Dang it. Got it. And the way the game will actually work is when you think you'll you hear it, you yell traitor. Ooh. Okay. Okay. So if you say traitor and it is wrong, you go to jail and it means you can't guess again until after your opponent has had at least one guess. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So our first one is Arkansas and Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Kentucky is, just to add a little bit of context here, Kentucky was a border state that was a bit contested. It did ultimately petition the union for help. So I'm counting it as a northern state. Okay. Just to be clear, you're going to yell as soon as you hear the option you think is correct. That way, there's a little bit of danger in getting it wrong. Okay. All right. Lexington. Traitor. It's incorrect. No. There is a Lexington, Kentucky, but there is no Lexington, Arkansas. No. Do I get to guess or it's... Yeah, you get to guess. Okay. Clinton. A traitor. That is correct, Bailey. Yeah. Clinton is the traitor. Uh... One point for Bailey. Question two. Bailey's up one to zero. No. Two states this time are Alabama and Maine. Ooh, ooh. Okay, a little bit of home court advantage. All right, here we go. Carthage. Trade. No. You said it. No, I didn't. Yes, you I did. I didn't finish saying you it. You said it. I didn't. You yeah. did. You did. You said it. You said trait. I said trait. All right. Is that correct? That is incorrect, Bailey. Okay. You are in jail mm. until Toby has a guess. <laughs> Number two, Evergreen. Number three, Auburn. Hmm. All right, I've read them through and Toby hasn't had a guess, so I'm going to read them through again. And Toby, remember to yell, traitor, when you think the option has been read. Okay. Carthage. Evergreen. Auburn. Traitor. 
That is correct. Yeah. Kirby, Auburn is in both Alabama and Maine. Boo. Yay, I knew it. Well, Bailey, you're released from jail and you can guess freely again. Okay, good. <laughs> Sometimes when I go home to Maine and say I live in LA, people are like, ah, oh, Lewiston, Auburn? I'm like, no. <laughs> is that really what they it's call? It's true, they do call it LA there yes. and it's oh, wow. hilarious. Yeah. All right, now we have Georgia and Ohio. All right. Columbus. Frankfurt. Macon. Uh, traitor. Traitor on Macon mm-hmm. is incorrect. Ugh. Go to jail, Toby. No, I don't want to go to jail. All right. Columbus. Traitor. That is correct, Bailey. There is a Columbus, Ohio and a Columbus, Georgia. Second guess. Yes. Well, second guess still puts you in jail, Toby. I'm <laughs> um, just kidding. You're out of jail again. <laughs> I keep going to jail for my second guesses. These, these jails are very lax. Just <laughs> mm-hmm. in and out, in and out. All right. So, Bailey. Yes. Here we go. You can win if you get this answer correct on the next date. Toby, you can seek to tie it up and bring this to a sudden death finale. Okay. Are you excited? Yes. Yes. All right. Number four. North Carolina and Vermont. Ooh. Montpelier. Burlington. Traitor. I'm so sorry. No. Bailey, Toby got it right. So Toby has tied up the <gasps> yeah. game. Burlington is in both North Carolina and Vermont. <laughs> and the coat factory. And the coat factory. And to the victor goes the coats. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. This is the last one, guys. You can both win. It's Virginia and Rhode Island. I know you guys both love both those places quite a bit. Here we go. Franklin. Providence. Traitor. Bailey, you can visit Toby in jail. No. That is incorrect. Providence Ooh. is only in Rhode Island. All right. So, Bailey. Okay. There was Franklin, and then Providence was incorrect. Okay. The last town name is Cumberland. So, I'm going to read those two again. You yell okay. traitor after the one you think is right. Okay. Franklin. Traitor. Incorrect, <gasps> Bailey. Cumberland is the traitor amongst Virginia and Rhode Island. That means you guys... Tie? Are in jail forever because I don't have a tie-breaking question. We're both Enjoy. traitors! Yay, we're in jail! You're Yay. both in jail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Perfect. Good game, Andrew. I learned geography. I got imprisoned. <laughs> All right, now's the time on the podcast where Dylan chooses books at random from our shelves. It is The, the Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening is... Is this for me, Dylan? Yes. <laughs> okay, thank you. You haven't even introduced who the book is for. <laughs> for Andrew, oh, whose go. birthday is recent, Ooh. as he's getting older, he got number 58, The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Oh, oh short one. There's a short one for you, Andrew. We are going classic. Yeah, this will be short. This will be nice. I'm very excited. Yeah, this is great. This gives me time to read some of the books I've bought and maybe bring my number down. <laughs> This is only like a 90-page book, right? There you go, yeah. Perfect. And now me. And Bailey has number 33, Evie Drake Starts Over by Linda Holmes. Oh, yeah. This was like one of the big books of the summer, and it takes place in Maine, and I believe it's a romance. So Bingo, bango, bongo. Bingo, bongo, bongo. (laughs) What? That's not what I say. How much sea is in it? There's probably sea, but it's more like young lady in the sea. Oh. Ooh. So next week on the podcast, we have a mini-sode. We are talking about three books that we couldn't put down. And then in two weeks, Toby has Middlemarch by George Eliot. And I have Evie Drake Starts Over by Linda Holmes. Nice. Wee! Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. 
Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the two read list podcast. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the two read list podcast and on Twitter at two read list pod. And if you liked what you heard and you want to help us find more listeners, please go to iTunes or your podcatcher of choice and leave us a review and a rating. I recommend five stars just as a suggestion. You should try that and see how you feel. Um, (laughs) But yeah, give us a rating. Leave us a review. It does actually boost our signal and make more people be able to find our work. And if you really enjoy the podcast and you know someone in your life who you think would enjoy it too, call them up on the telephone, tell them something terrible has happened to you. And then when they answer, they'll say, say, what What happened? And you're like, I'm just kidding. I'm fine. And also the two read list. It's great. You should listen to it. And they'll be so relieved and happy. It's like when you have a nightmare and then you wake up and it's it's fine. I like that you're giving our listeners specific tools to use. It's <laughs> yeah, very I good. Mean, yeah. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you next week. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books. books.